The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Russian military and naval expert Andrei Martyanov. He graduated from the Kirov Naval Red Banner Academy and served as an officer on the ships and staff position of the Soviet Coast Guard through 1990. He took part in events in the Caucasus, which led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. In the mid-90s, he moved to the U.S., where he currently works as lab director in an aerospace group. He is the author of three hard-hitting and must-read books, Losing Military Supremacy, The Myopia of uh, American Strategic Planning, The Real Revolution in Military Affairs and Disintegration, Indicators of the Coming American Collapse. Dobry den, gospodin Martinov. Dobry den. Как дела? Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I'm good. Thank you. Спасибо. <laughs> and uh, before I forget, just say I'm I'm ready for the podcast. I've got my Putin mug. I picked up yeah. in St. Petersburg. So, um, yeah. all right. Uh, uh, I've interviewed a number of your intellectual colleagues, uh, many of which you cite in, in your books, such as Paul Craig Roberts, Andrei Raevsky, Patrick Armstrong, James Kunstler, <laughs> Glenn Deason, Dmitry Orlov, and, and many others. And so I think we're on the same uh, frequency and. Sure. With, your, with your background, knowledge, and book trilogy, we could do a 10-hour podcast, but we will try to get some key points uh, sure. in an hour. Uh, I thought uh, we should start with um, the American hubris and exceptionalism, which is a running th theme throughout your books. I think it's important to point out the nuance that we are both, uh, I think, American Slavs in a sense. You are a Slav of I think of Soviet or Russian extraction, which yeah. you've you've become Americanized, if not national naturalized as an American citizen. Yep, I, I'm a Slav of Croatian extraction, born in America. Uh, I consider myself a, a patriotic American who loves the Constitution and Republic. But American exceptionalism has always bothered me, and I see it in all aspects of society, not just in Washington. We see it in the individual American with their haughty and entitled attitudes, which becomes even more evident when they travel abroad. Uh, in your first book, you cite Alexis de Tocqueville insights on the matter and you say this American narcissism is a clear and present danger to both the world and domestic American institutions. Could you comment on this exceptionalism and you know how you see it today and how it poses uh, a threat? Um, sure, sure. And fact is, I am naturalized American citizen. So and certainly uh, for the last 25 years, what I observed, I definitely do not recognize the country I live in anymore. This is not America I used to know, even 10 years ago. As for uh, hubris, it's not just Alexis de Tocqueville uh, um, and famous uh, phrase about garrulous patriotism. Mencken wrote it in American Creed too. It's not like, it's um, pretty much the... Uh, uh, continuous topic or theme or melody, if you wish to, in American character, especially uh, 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 American elites, that they are highly self-unaware. It is combination of both ignorance and in the same time the, of the complex of inferiority. I know this firsthand, for example, because I knew uh, some people who would go after considering Chicago as to be the pinnacle of the human civilization, then they get to Moscow and their jaws drop and they like, uh, they begin to really kind of have a cognitive dissonance to put it mildly. And it is especially true about American political elites and especially foreign, uh, uh, foreign policy elites, which uh, American foreign policy elites a huge struggle with is uh, uh, basically infested with the neocons, which are by definition uh, uh, proselytizing uh, exceptionalists, if you uh, look at it. And uh, 
obviously there is the other contingent, so to speak, which also wants to settle their accounts with Russia for a variety of reasons. Uh, hence the NATO expansion in 97. A lot of many lobbies, uh, including uh, Slavic lobbies like Poles and uh, US News World Report uh, article from 97 even had the name, don't ignore Poles at the Poles. When Clinton basically gave up and decided, okay, let's you know expand NATO. Nobody out of American elites, well, I, I am probably wrong saying nobody. There are certainly people um, who were on the scale of uh, even James Baker or late George F. Keenan, let alone uh, esteemed ambassador Jack Matlock, people of the high intellect and great self-awareness of the world outside. But they are exception. Generally, what you have people who are so ignorant that they indeed buy into this exceptionalist thing but if you read my uh, disintegration, uh, it was the funniest thing which I uh, wrote about when Marco Rubio, who is the um, uh, USDA-approved neocon, okay, and who suddenly came to the realization when his campaign obviously failed that uh, majority of Americans do not want this exceptionalism, paradoxically enough. And he writes about this openly. Obviously, it in no way shaken his convictions. <laughs> he, he may proclaim whatever he wants about that his uh, uh, revision of his um, exceptionalism, but he remains exceptionalist. But point is, American political elites, especially foreign policy elites, they are proselytizing and they are highly self-unaware, which comes with the, as I already stated, complex of inferiority. Often they uh, communicate with the cultures which are much older and much more uh, profoundly built than America in the United States for all America's great accomplishment. I by no means want to diminish it. No, America is a great country. But when you talk to Chinese who has who have been around for 5,000 years and saw things America couldn't even dream about, or you talk to Russians who are in the second millennia and who went through the horrendous wars and have uh, to the point of that even Richard Pipes, a famous Russo Pope and um, uh, falsifier of Russian history, even he had to admit that Russians have a much more sober and much more realistic view on their uh, national security. So there you are. What do we have? We have, you know, screw the EU Victoria Nuland, her, hus Nuland, her husband, this neocon, so-called pseudo-intellectual elite, which literally drives the foreign policy of the United States. Or on the other hand, we had uh, uh, basically uh, a collection of the geopolitical thought which by no means was the first rate. You we're talking about Francis Fukuyama, which has now became pretty much a joke, you know, and meme, you know, with his end of history. We're talking Merschheimer, who for all his, uh, you know, uh, virtues, continues to speak about liberalism as something, you know, uh, very special. And, and of course, we have Big New Brzezinski, who's basically pretty much drunk ideas about geopolitics. And the guy was uh, he was basically nothing more than whiteboard theorist, you know, who never commanded anything, who never fought anything. He was a political scientist by education. And we still have his uh, ideas 
percolating within this uh, state department environment and intelligence, which they still think like, for example, Russia uh, without Ukraine will collapse and will never become an empire. Well, uh, I have not no problems with Russia not being an empire, but I mean, this is delusional. And that's what the thing which we, it all came to a head recently. And now we have basically um, uh, an exhibit A of being totally ignorant and totally uh, unaware of the world outside because Russia doesn't want Ukraine. And in fact, Ukraine, God forbid Russia ever gets anything from Ukraine. It's going to be a drag and it's going to slow down Russia. And Russians are keenly aware of that. But go and tell this in, to State Department, although I believe they begin to kind of open their eyes to this fact of life right now when they recognize that, yeah, Russia is not going to fight for Ukraine unless NATO actually begins to deploy there and Ukraine becomes the member of NATO. Then, yes, Russia physically will destroy Ukraine and split it in probably three or four different parts and heck with it, you know? That exceptionalism and especially bizarre belief, conviction that, oh, they know better is absolutely ridiculous. In fact, is they don't know better. And uh, if you uh, read uh, 2014 uh, article by uh, American diplomat and uh, foreign service professional, James Bruno, he post, uh, posted a, f- a funny article in Politico, which called uh, Russians eat America, are eating America's lunch. And Michki openly admits they have simply better diplomats. And that's exactly the case. And exceptionalism meets reality. And guess what? Uh, uh, their cognitive dissonances begin to unfold and they lead to their <clears throat> psychological ailments, you know, if not psychiatric ones, to put it mildly. It's funny you mentioned Chicago because I was born in Chicago and uh, a few years ago I went to Moscow. And, you know, as you said, my my jaws did drop. I felt like I was on another planet uh, in a good way. And it was just so much uh, ancient, you know, history. And and myself as a professor of history, it was just uh, amazing to see that. Um, And so you you were talking about liberalism. And I also had another question. Um, In your book, you discuss, you know, globalist capitalism, liberalism, Mm -hmm. globalists, globalist eugenicist elite. Uh, Many view the globalists as sort of a sinister international, you know, uh, financial moneyed power uh, made manifest. We see in groups such as the World Economic Forum, Bilderberg, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tri- Trilateral Commission, Mr. Schwab, yeah, yeah, all this, all this stuff. I, I recently interviewed my professor, former UN special reporter uh, Alfred Desayas, who in his book uh, mentions this as well. And so, you know, what's your take on on you know who are uh, in your view the, the globalists and what threat do they pose? Um, um, for, I want to start from afar, if you don't mind. One of my favorite um, books in history, one of the, my favorite. No, not Arnold Toynbee and, you know, not all those, you know, elaborations and, you know, and analysis and magazine and things like that. It's uh, Corelli Barnett's uh, The Collapse of British Power. It's a historic masterpiece, actually, written by the chair of the Shakespearean Society, no less, you know. <laughs> which tells you about the level. It's one of the most cold, objective, detached narrations of how indeed American, uh, I mean, British Empire collapsed and why it collapsed. 
And one of the uh, reasons he gives for it, uh, and it's my favorite quote of him, one of favorite, there's just some incredible one-liners in every page pretty much what he writes, is the fact that uh, it was liberalism which destroyed the whole concept of the nation as a community and uh, presented uh, the human society as nothing more than the collection of the human atoms unified under the same set of laws, forgetting that it has to be community with a common purpose and that nations have to be generally self-supporting where he attacks, obviously, Adam Smith, you know, and obviously it's not the uh, verbatim, but it's very close to his ideas and which I totally share. Uh, We are not living in liberalism really anymore. Liberalism as such is already dead in terms of the social concept because we live in the vogue cancel culture, which is totalitarian in its, uh, in its very foundation. Uh, if when John Cleese of Monty Python says that I cannot take this anymore and moves to the uh, Caribbean islands, you get it, you know. And again, as bad as it is in the United States, Europe is altogether. It's a panopticon. It's then... 1984 taken to some uh, absolutely new levels. So whenever people begin to wax liberalism and all that, it's funny. There is no liberalism in a classic sense of responsible people who, yeah, we have our personal uh, aspirations. And uh, just as, again, uh, classic liberals thought by promoting our interests, we inadvertently uh, promote uh, nation's interests. Well, forget about those ideas because they're gone. What we have today is paradox of totalitarian society based on the utter individualism to the point of a complete absurd. And that, that's why we have the, how many genders do we have today? I don't know, 200. Some people have, they defend and write PhD thesis on that. We have critical race theory, which is a, some, it's just complete insanity, you know, and believe me, I studied Marxism Leninism professionally, okay? So, and God, good God, I mean, Marxists have nothing on, on those people, you know? So Stalin would be like, you know, just absolutely has jaw dropped when he would be seeing what is going on here. So in this sense, social <clears throat> liberalism is, is done in West, especially in Europe. In terms of uh, in terms of the economic part, uh, well, uh, I don't need to even uh, go much about it from my point of view, because I definitely support uh, uh, Michael Hudson's uh, contention that basically what they teach today and what has exist as economy in the Western world is not economy at all. We have this. Uh, crazy monetarist ideas that you can make money out of thin air. But the point is uh, human um, psychiatry at this stage is such that you cannot create any more necessities because the more necessities you create, like uh, people, uh, some people are already basically addicted to their uh, uh, Facebook, for example. Okay. These are not tangible necessities and they are actually go contrary to the human nature and human psychology and psychiatry. And, you know, a friend of mine and then Dmitry Arlov later used his uh, um, term 
which is called mid-generation. We literally have mid-generation. We have people who have no clue. And uh, whenever we speak about these people, what has to be understood, and again, I'm not the only one who say that. In fact, is that is my first book, I believe. Or No, it's not my first. It's in the third one, when uh, one of the conservative American thinkers, there are still thinkers there, writes that uh, our elites cannot reset their uh, uh, wall outlet, forget about resetting, uh, you know, you look at those financiers, you know, and those uh, people with MBA who run the businesses. You look at Bill Gates, who has no formal education. He dropped out of the second year in the university. Or you have people who know only how to write code and who have no systemic view, scientific, systemic, historical, and natural science and engineering view of the world. And they write all those concepts, which are the same as the Western geopolitical thought. They are reasonable. They are preposterous. Those people won't be uh, able to run 7-Eleven store. Charles Schwab, I, I, I don't know if the guy even understands what modern CNC, computer numerical control is, or how aerospace industry operates. He doesn't. This, he is, some, some, this is something you mentioned in your book, and I, I, I had a question about this. I, I wanted to also add my own personal experience, you know, yeah, which, sure. which confirms your analysis uh, regarding the weakness of the American education system. You said, I think in your first book, that Soviet graduates were years ahead of American graduates in basic sound uh, education. And I went to primary and secondary school in both the US uh, and Croatia. We, uh, moved, we moved back and forth. And yeah. I, I remember I found that the level of math being taught in, say, the Croatian sixth grade uh, was being taught in you know eighth or ninth grade uh, in the US, or maybe even at the high school level. There was a huge disparity. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely. And um, we have to uh, also remember. And that was, I believe, People's or Time magazine after the Sputnik moment. That's when this, and of course, uh, Admiral Hyman Rikover, who was trying, he said that uh, Russia's uh, threat to American national security is not in the ships or missiles. It's in the desks in the Russian schools. That's his quote. And... Uh, the Time magazine uh, uh, published in uh, after the Sputnik uh, moment in 1958, I believe that was the article when it showed that basically the amount uh, uh, of uh, <clears throat> um, physics, mathematics, biology, and chemistry average Soviet graduate from this high school receives is three times uh, uh, <laughs> more than stipulated for the entrance into the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And you can see it even today. You get to this funny SAT scores, you know, they suggest you uh, to, oh yeah, if you want to go to the SAT two, you know, which is kind of somewhat, uh, you know, and you still take probably math and English. Uh, to get to Moscow uh, State uh, Technical University, Bauman State uh, University, for example, uh, kids sometimes have to take the summer one-year college, preparatory college, because the physics already in, let's say, okay, let's take Russian schools, average Russian school. <laughs> the um, physics and chemistry courses there, let alone mathematics, are basically there in the uh, 10th and 11th grade, are what is taught in the first two years, much of it, what is taught in the first two years in the engineering schools when you go here in the United States. So that's what many people don't understand. 
And yes, when you look at the modern uh, the uh, elites, hey, we do not have to go far. The company, uh, which everybody knows, Boeing, remember who uh, initiated uh, all this process and collapse of Boeing? was Mr. McNerney, I believe, the guy who killed first General Electric. And then he, he was the first man in the history of Boeing who had MBA but didn't have engineering aerospace uh, uh, background. Guess what? This was the guy who initiated Boeing 737 MAX, which killed hundreds of people. And the only ideology of Boeing since then was, we, it's not engineering company. We are here to make money. Well, didn't Boeing make money? Huh? So with uh, Airbus now basically just stomping it into the oblivion, you know, and uh, that's what we get. And I agree with this. Those people from Davos culture, they when you look at them, they're basically not very well-educated people. They may understand how to make money in the Wall Street. They may understand how money and finances work. But when you come and ask them, okay, how do you create and organize manufacturing of this and that? They will know it. What they exploit, what they have, is what they inherited from much more competent, much more creative and outstanding generations of Western thinkers, engineers, and, you know. But you saw yourself, Boeing 737, uh, Max, as people from Boeing themselves wrote, and it became the um, you know, known around the world because it was published in Washington Post, it was published in New York Times. When people say that that, that plane was created by, designed by monkeys and supervised by clowns, this is the quote. I, I've had some guests echo the same sentiments as you that these elites are not that smart, and I hope that proves to be the case. Uh, and, and I wanted to then to, to ask you about some of the military aspects. And and I have to admit, like I, I followed your work uh, from a distance for for a while, and I, I hadn't had the time to get around to actually reading your books. And I've, I've heard many people hype them, Pepe Escobar, who I've interviewed many years ago. And I, I must say that they did live live up to the hype. And I was, uh, you had a lot of evidence, very well written and uh, shocking in, in, in many regards. Um, you, you have written that military power is one of the main pillars on which national power uh, rests. And I've always kind of instinctively had that perspective, especially on this podcast, which is why I always talk a lot about war and, and military conflicts. And you, you make a lot of key points I haven't heard uh, many people talk about, which is how Russia is really underestimated, I guess, in the eyes of the American elites, and perhaps as a result in the eyes of the rest of the world, and how they, the American elites suffer from this incredible myopia and, and delusion in terms of, you know, as you said, how they view their own strength and, and that of their adversaries. And uh, Russia get, really gets its bang for the buck. You know, it turns out the top of the line military hardware and technology, uh, as you write, for a fraction of what America does, uh, and is self-sustainable in many res respects, having an enclosed technological cycle. You say that in real geopolitics, it matters only what a weapon system can do and how it is deployed, not how much it's worth, uh, which these days is measured in these infl in inflated uh, currency yeah. anyways. And uh, you're saying that Washington's exaggerated sense of self and serious mental crisis within the ruling elites increases the danger of them doing something stupid. But it's really revealing that uh, you, you um, the revelation that you make that Russia truly is a force to be reckoned with, a peer competitor. In a recent video, you said that you don't think there is any better geopolitical ana analysis that is also so self-aware and situationally 
aware as that in Russia, I would agree. And so could you tell us a bit about this rise and return and, and the true strength of, uh, of Russia and with the military terms, the hypersonics they've created and, and, and all of these things? Uh, first, I want to start with, uh, I mentioned, mentioned it all the time, all the time. And again, what Mr. Barnett, Jeffrey Barnett, not to be mistaken with Karelia Barnett, two different people. Jeffrey Barnett, <clears throat> in 1992, I believe, uh, published in U.S. Army Parameters magazine, those famous 14 points, which, by the way, is very Marxist and very materialistic in a sense of economy. And U.S. Parameters wrote this, and uh, then Samuel, late Samuel Huntington place that, those 14 points, 14 signs or features why West was leading then at 1992 uh, or 1994 uh, kind of time frame. And those points are absolutely correct, 14 points. And they become even more relevant today because out of those 14 points, only two points are related to finances like controlling of the international bank banking system and controlling most of the hard currencies. These two points, while still important, they are much less relevant today. But uh, of course, the third point of being more moral leadership, well, we, it's very contested point, let's put it this way, because it's very debatable today who really does have moral leadership. But other 11 points, all of them, that's what, 89% uh, or something like that, you know, of the whole uh, set, which gives uh, the perspective is absolutely correct and even more relevant today uh, than it was then. It is productive manufacturing developed industrial economy, which provides an enormous amount of the finished products. And of course, this is precisely uh, this economy, which produces first rate military power. And when you look at it from production of the, uh, you know, we can go with the computer technologies, but there's much more to it. Production of the steel, production of the machinery, production of the basic food products and agriculture, and you go on and on and on, and you run into the wall of the physical economy because that's the only economy which matters. I don't care who makes much in whatever computers by adding zeros to their worth. At uh, you know what Stalin once uh, responded brilliantly, and uh, he had the uh, delegation during the World War II, I believe 1943, from uh, one of the uh, nations which then was occupied, and they were talking about Catholic nations, and they were talking to Stalin and saying, you know what, you have to uh, really employ the um, help of Pope. And Stalin's response was, uh, okay, if, uh, if Pope is so influential, how many divisions does Vatican have? Simple as that. You know, and that's the whole thing. People cannot understand this incredible, uh, uh, obvious connection between advanced physical economy and first-rate military power. One doesn't go without another. They are interconnected. They are the... Uh, uh, two faces of the same metal or of the same coin. You 
cannot create first rate advanced military without having first rate advanced industrial economy, period. No matter how much money you have, you cannot buy it. You have to manufacture, develop R&D, all those things. And this is extremely, extremely difficult and it is extremely expensive. And much more comes into power here than just merely money. But yes, many people, when they say uh, truth is, uh, and it's uh, maybe it's a, a well-intentioned mistake, but it is mistake nonetheless. When they talk about that, oh, United States has the largest uh, you know, military budget in the world. True. In absolute numbers, United States has around 700 uh, you know, uh, plus billion dollars, although much of it goes for servicing and pay, uh, you know, and salaries and things of this na nature. Only part of it goes into the R&D and uh, uh, procurement of the equipment. And I've been on that uh, point for many years, many years, probably now in the second decade that, oh, Russia spent $64 billion or 68 or whatever, you know, uh, first. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, F-35 sells for about $95 million today. Fact is, judging by the how the uh, United States twists the hands of the customers, <laughs> it's been basically shoved down the throat, and it's not such a good of, uh, aircraft. Everybody knows this, and uh, even Congressional Budget Office knows this. And, you know, but the point is, uh, do they make money on this? Well, yeah, probably some, not much. If not, maybe it's even, uh, you know, altogether subsidized. We don't know. But it's not profitable plane, to put it mind. Russia makes Su-35, which goes uh, for $35 million, uh, uh, you know. And this plane, uh, well, we don't even want to compare this, you know. It's also net-centric uh, capable. The way it flies, F-35 will never be able to fly to start with, you know. And this stealth thing, I don't want to go there. It's just absolutely funny to discuss this. But but the point is, but for Russia, 35 or sometimes 40, depending on the configuration of a Su-35, is that just the price which goes into the international market? It's not the cost. And it's known fact that Russia makes killing on selling its aircraft, combat aircraft, its uh, air defense systems, ships, and things of uh, uh, nature, of this nature. Why it happens so well? Because obviously the Russian military budget realistically cannot be measured in US dollars. You just cannot do that. I mean, period. For, uh, again, it's difficult to explain people that they need to take, they think that because US dollar is reserve currency, it's, that's the it factor. Oh, it's not. And the fact is, again, 400,000 today, even in the relatively inexpensive Washington city of Spokane in real estate, you will buy their flea uh, disintegrating 1927 uh, junk box, you know? For 100 grand, you will buy, if not else, you will buy something which you would buy for 700,000 here, you know? But you will buy it near, you know, third Moscow transport ring. And this is exquisite and desirable real estate. 
So there you go. Same goes here. So some people from Center of Naval Analysis, uh, namely Mr. Mike Kaufman, I, I assume he reads my books, they came up year ago with the fact that no, Russian military budget is not $64 million, billion dollars. You cannot calculate it like this. At least you have to try to put it at a purchase power parity thing, which is still not uh, accurate because I can give you example, but at least it's better than those ridiculous numbers, you know? So yeah, Russia, Russia's military budget is about, yeah, $220 billion. Well, yeah, it's closer to, you know, but then again, there are some idiots who still, you know, say, oh, okay, even PPP, Russian economy is the size of Germany. No, Russian economy is much larger than the economy of Germany. For a simple re reason, Russia produces something like four times more than uh, Germany of the uh, energy. It produces twice more of the steel. And that goes on and on and on of how much Russia produces, not to speak of the fact that Germany is does not even factor nowadays in shipbuilding where Russia is in the top three, let alone in their uh, commercial aircraft, which Russia still produces commercial aircraft. Each month you have those funky and, you know, pesky Sukhoi superjets. Now the first four serial MS-21s are going to be joining uh, after receiving a certificate yesterday you know, uh, uh, Russia Airlines. So, yeah, and okay, Germany produces a, a little bit of machinery. Yeah, they produce more cars. And Siemens produces a significant, uh, you know, amount of rolling, uh, rolling stock and obviously some, uh, especially uh, medical uh, equipment. So, but if you look at this, I mean, goodness gracious, you can see it even in the cities. Cities, large cities, are the face of the civilization. People come from Germany all the time. There are many Russian Germans who are returning back to Russia nowadays. They go to not Moscow, St. Petersburg, or Sochi, or Ekaterinburg, you know, which are those stellar, you know, just uh, you know, show off. And no, they go to some place like Belgorod and like, oh my goodness. It's much better than, you know, we lived in Germany. Yeah, it is much better. It's clean. It's safe. Developed infrastructure, you know, highways and things like that. And people are like, is it Russia? Yeah, it's Russia. All right. It's just not Russia of 1990s, you know? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I can tell, say the same thing because I, I lived in Kazakhstan and here mm -hmm. in Mexico. And, and just as you say, I remember in Kazakhstan, you can get a nice apartment for like, you know, 20, 30, 40, well, it depends which city, but you yeah. know, the smaller places, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 dollars, which would cost in the US, the, the same standard quality of, of living would cost hundreds of thousands uh, of dollars. And same thing here in Mexico, just as an example, you know, I like, um, I, I pay $5 a month for my electricity. And in the US, people pay hundreds of uh, dollars uh, yeah. for, for electricity. So it's just like, it's hard. To, it's it's people don't 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 realize that, and I I have the same standard quality of life here in Mexico as I, exactly, as I, as exactly. I would have. They in the don't understand it. Yeah, and uh, they think that. Uh, and again, there are some places in America which are rich, but uh, actually they are diminishing in quantity. Nowadays, we basically have the uh, disintegration of the American cities. My favorite Seattle today is a hellhole. I love the city. It, you will not recognize the city. Same goes for Portland which was demolished by mobs and, you know, basically, it's, these are dead cities now. There is no spirit left. There's nothing good in there. They used to be beautiful and clean. Not anymore. But that's not just the, the, the issue with uh, how it looks outwardly. 
It matters in exactly how you live in, you know, what they didn't understand. And sometimes I uh, try to convey and people still don't get it. It's like, uh, do you understand that in Soviet Union, if you got your apartment, they were free. And once Soviet Union collapsed, those are all apartments. I know my mother did the same. They have been privatized and people stepped into the full ownership without paying a penny on that. And when that was one of the things which people don't understand, oh, huge part, probably like 60% of Russian population, guess what? They have real estate, which they own. It's paid for. And guess what? Some of it, as you said, absolutely. Uh, I remember when my son first time got to uh, Russia and we got into this Khrushchevka, you know, like, uh, that's just Khrushchevka, 50th building, you know, and the outskirts of Moscow. He gets into the flat of people where we live and say, this is so nice. I say, yeah, people may repair them. And it's beautiful inside, comfortable, nice, clean, you know, and it's like, and this is free. They pay just, you know, utilities period that's heard, all, no i saw the same thing and same thing happened in kazakhstan many yep. people uh, had a bunch of apartments you know families that had one or two or three and then yep. they they sold them and um before i left kazakhstan i had a dinner with one of my kazakh neighbors and they had bought two apartments and remodeled them into one and yep. it looked like a, pa- a palace like i i couldn't believe yep. it was the first time i had been in um invited i had dinner with them it was like amazing i felt like i was in a whole hotel room so people people have this especially americans who who think the rest of the world is basically the third world they yeah. have absolutely no idea i know many americans who say you know i i lived in mongolia as well and they're like what are you doing in, in mongolia you know what are you doing in, in mexico or kazakhstan i'm like you guys uh, you have no idea and and the humility as well that they, they think america's the best and everywhere else is is garbage but uh people they, they need to humble get uh humble themselves a bit and i wanted to get back to what you talk about in, in your book in the military aspect you know the the hyper hypersonics and you you say that the real revolution in military affairs starts with modern hypersonic fully shoot and forget weaponry whose capabilities trump completely any kind of net centricity by virtue of those weapons being simply uninterceptable by yeah. any existent uh, means and that hypersonics allow those who possess them to control the escalation uh, and, and win the war you say in theory, there's no defense against hypersonics yet, possibly in the future, direct uh, energy weapons. And then you, you also go on in your book to dis- discuss the Russian-made S-400s, which are and um, 500s which, which are proliferating to the Eurasian perimeter from China to India, Syria, Turkey, uh, Iran, and uh, Iraq are, are interested. But you say that the, these systems have a deeper meaning, which expose the U.S. Um, investment into the stealth technologies and, you know, this great operational uh, mistake of massive proportions um and and uh, you just i think you published on your blog that the russian s550s are already uh, in production you, yeah you it was t- in the tas uh, state which is stunning development but, honestly but, it, but it, all, all of this kind of you discussing the hypersonics the s500s and it, it kind of sounds like game over militarily uh, for the us i mean what, what could you tell us about all of this stuff that russia has done in terms of the weaponry our game over for the U.S. militarily was already by uh, 2015, 2016. And when Russia <clears throat> has been uh, invited by um, uh, uh, Assad 
into Syria to fight uh, ISIS. And uh, I remember their hysteria in U.S. media. It was literally hysterical responses to all that because it was the visual representation which many professionals already knew. So it was something like, oh, here's only the thing which professionals, real professionals should know, and here it is suddenly in the public space and everybody sees it. Uh, in terms of missiles, missile development, and in terms of air defense complexes, uh, United States and NATO lags not by years, it lags by generations. Because already starting, apart from the layered air defense, which Russia builds, and it's, um, I know some opinions of American military and intelligence professionals on that, and it's not in US favor, to put it mildly, it's the fact that um, Russia already has the means not only just produce and deliver strike hypersonic uh, means, but also defend against perspective hypersonics. And S-500 two days ago proved it again. It was tested against hypersonic uh, uh, targets, shut them down. And this is not just things of this nature, just S-500, let alone if we have, which is now being uh, absolutely confirmed, the uh, Nudol A235 in the mobile complexes. And this is Mach 13, uh, you know, missile for intercept of pretty much any kind of ballistic missile, but also hypersonics, perspective hypersonics. West doesn't have hypersonic weapon. And United States hoping to get there by 2023 with the Dark Eagle, but I doubt it's going to happen. But point is that uh, what you're going to do, just to give you an example, S-500, which is now in full combat uh, deployment and is being serially pro produced, the uh, range of S-500 is 600 kilometers on the aerial targets. It can shoot down hypersonic, but it's going to be on the shorter range. It should, can shoot down ballistic missiles. It's going to be shorter range and shorter elevation. But up to the 30 kilometers, anything which flies into this ray, uh, height, altitude, 600 kilometers, with the ability to, Russians uh, actually were one of the pioneers of the net-centric warfare starting from 1950s when it was the all an analogous pretty much, but already then there were and uh, uh, some uh, movements towards the net centricity. And um, just to give you an example, uh, no uh, Western Air Force can fight without E3 Sentry AVACs. They are blind without. I mean, they just can fly and they will become easy, uh, any air defense complex or advanced air force. But, the uh, range of the uh, uh, E3 Sentry radar is around, around. it's obviously the uh, number is secret, but we know approximately uh, that it is about 400 kilometers, okay? Slightly less on the uh, uh, ground targets, okay? Because it also scans and it has a good clutter, uh, you know, filtering systems and things of this nature. So uh, the question is, in order for, for some, this E3 Sentry to come in and start uh, uh, conducting the uh, control, command and control of the, and vectoring, you know, the aviation, it has to come at least within the 400 uh, uh, kilometer range of any targets. Well, guess what? 
<laughs> S400 shoots at 400, S500 shoots at 600, and S550 uh, is going to be shooting at up to 1,000 kilometers. So basically, forget it. I mean, you will not be, and you don't have to listen to me again. Rand, Mr. Achmanek, he is the biggest honcho there in the area of operations in Rand. He admitted in the real war, between, you know, against Russia or China, the blue force, which is, you know, West, NATO, we get our ass handed to us. You know, that's his quote. Yeah. And, you know, Russian proverb is the best air defense is our tanks at the enemy's, uh, you know, the runways, you know. And guess what? You have, uh, we completely moved into different uh, tactical and operational paradigm. Because, for example, uh, King Zhao, uh, super uh, hypersonic weapon uh, after it launched from MiG 31 and eventually it's going to be launched from the new TU uh, 22 M3Ms, which are being produced as we speak. Uh, it has the range itself of 2000 kilometers. Russia sees it's not a secret container and resonance uh, 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 radar over the horizon radar. Russia sees up to 3000 kilometers. Over the horizon. That means what? As the creator of resonance says, we can see even small aviation being on the runway in the Amsterdam or Rotterdam airport before the takeoff. You could see it. Russians did it on purpose. If you look, go back for a week ago, and you will uh, uh, look at the presentation of the Russian air defense in Syria. They deliberately, which they done, it's seldom done, but they do it, and people who watch it, they know. They show their uh, radar coverage of the Middle East, and it's pretty much all of it. You know, <laughs> so and it's like, uh, yeah, you can get targeting and you can deliver the weapon, which is going to hit the target. And the truth of the matter is, today, if it was possible, like even 20 years ago, only on the ranges of 200 kilometers and you had like Tomahawks, yeah, the longest they fly, it's around 2,000 kilometers. Subsonic is a target. You can shoot hypersonic targets, which are hypersonic weapons, which are not interceptable. The West has nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing which can take it out. And they fly to 2,000 kilometers. The new uh, operational XURs, which are uh, basically smaller uh, with a zircon light, they will be uh, Mach 15, range of 1,500 kilometers. Where do, where do we go from here? Well, this, just, this leads me to my next question. When you say, where do we go from here? Uh, and, you know, in your books, you say that many Re Russians are actually expecting uh, resigns to the possibility of a hot war with the West uh, and U.S. And just this morning, uh, Paul Craig Roberts writes that he believes 2022 could be a year where we see uh, war. You've written that, quote, war is the only way the U.S. economy can continue to operate uh, and postpone its day of uh, reckoning. Uh, but this day is coming and American power elites are feverishly trying to ignite the fire of a global war, believing the U.S. will be spared the death and destruction plan for lands uh, other than America uh, proper. Uh, uh, and also, I, I read an article recently posted in Bloomberg, again, from the elites saying that uh, now it's not unthinkable that America 
it's the homeland could actually be uh, attacked if there was another war, unlike you know World War Two. Uh, and yeah. you know this this belief is it's it's all delusional. And um, I think you also right in the case of attacking Russia and to a certain degree China, uh, such a scenario is not uh, impossible. So um, and you also say this is the most important question for civilization uh, today. And so, what are your thoughts on um, another world war? Um, first. Um uh, the only world war which might happen, I mean, theoretically, between today, things change. Let's remember this too. You know, things change. Things are, <clears throat> is a nuclear exchange. Other than that, United States and NATO absolutely have no forces required even to mount any kind of operation against Russian interests in the Eastern Europe. Forget about attacking Russia. They will be annihilated. And uh, um, I will give you a quote from the officer operator, Colonel Truhan of the Russian Central Apparatus of the Ministry of Defense and General Staff Officer. I quote, we don't even sweat about NATO. And right now, uh, United States wants to place their like a couple of brigade combat teams. It's like 10,000 people about altogether for, for these two brigades, 170 Abrams, M1s, couple hundred of Bradleys or whatever. You know, um, it's not even serious, okay? It's, I mean, it's not just disparage, it's... Uh, uh, well, they're basically kamikaze, sitting ducks. You know, every single uh, 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 military installation of NATO along the western border of Russia, and even deep into the uh, Europe, including the ports, be that be this Bremenhaven in Germany or whatever the ports in France, in case of conventional start of the war, they're not survivable in the first two, three hours. Period. They will be just taken out. And after that, how do you deliver troops? <laughs> if you even, uh, how long it will take for the United States to assemble troops required? And uh, uh, no, there will be no half a year as Saddam and his third rate force allowed you. There, there will be no such thing. And uh, so that's the whole point. So conventionally, NATO and United States can do nothing. And that is why they want now Russia to invade Ukraine in order at least to gain some kind of, you know, um, how to say it, benefit from this. At least say, ah, you see, these are, you know, aggressive, you know, Ruskies, and here they are. Oh, here they do rape and pillage. And okay, here's, you know what? Russia already basically offered them, hey, you want your West? Have it for crying out loud. <laughs> Let them people though in Germany and France. We don't need them, you know. Let them just pay for our pay for our services. Why would Russia need them? You know, that's the whole point. And what is important, US military understands this. The last vestiges of the competence and sound geopolitics are within some strata of American military. Because they are professionals, they have to calculate. They know how to calculate. Obviously, they are forced to go out and do ridiculous and reasonable public, you know, statements. But uh, you know, when you look at people, even Mili, you know, 
he he has the uh, general Milley. He has to run the Pentagon, and which is being disintegrated by the by the way woke ideology, and they now want to use their uh, bombers on the biofuel, which in, uh, prevents uh, you know environmental damage. Really. So you're carrying like uh, half a megaton of uh, nuclear bombs. Oh, we're worried about the. I mean, this is, uh, it's so grotesque. It's Monty Python cannot do this anymore. You know, you cannot create this, you know. And now you have the issue of they dress soldiers into the high heels and the pregnant suits, you know. And I mean, come on. So the only war which is possible is escalation to the nuclear threshold. But believe me, I believe American military and competent military and uh, um, uh, uh, intelligence people conveyed it to American political elites who never served a day in the uniform or who have no clue what a real war is. They probably delivered it to them that, guys, it's not a good idea. So, and there were already some uh, thoughts on the, ah, yeah, let's, Let's be competitive, competitors, but not necessarily. We don't have to kill each other, you know. But the point is that America doesn't have any more even economic wherewithal to kind of counter this whole <laughs> situation. It cannot compete with China economically. Forget it. China produces 12 times more steel than the United States, three and a half times more automobiles. Uh, Chinese shipbuilding uh, industry dwarfs that of the United States. It's like ridiculous. People have to look at the real life, you know, what is going on. Yeah, th- th- this leads me to my uh, next question. I'm going to try to roll the three questions uh, into one, which, uh, again, you talk about in, in your third book, you know, the disintegration, the yeah. indi- the coming American collapse. And uh, I've, inter- I've interviewed a number of people, the cultural historian, uh, Morris Berman, who lives here in Mexico, who wrote a trilogy on the collapse of American empire. And uh, I kind of left America in 2006 for many reasons. But, you know, one of them, because I, I felt also that the empire w- was would decline. Um, it would collapse, that um, the economy would, was on terminal decline, and that we would see authoritarianism rise. And in your book, you say America is towards its fate of becoming a poor country and nothing can be uh, done about it. Um, you've talked about economic collapse and hyperinflation. I'm also of the opinion that we are on this road. Some of my high-level of past guests agree. Uh, other high-level guests have said that we will not see uh, hyperinflation in the U.S. because of its status as world reserve currency. Uh, I kind of uh, disagree. Uh, and then beyond the economic collapse, if you if you can comment on that, you also discuss the possibility of you know a hot war, a civil war uh, in the U.S., which I've been talking about. I know the Russian academic Igor Panarin made the infamous prediction uh, uh, 10 years ago, I think, that the U.S. would split uh, apart. Uh, and we saw the Washington Post recently uh, promoting the idea of a civil war in 2022 or 2024 uh, and beyond. And so uh, what are your thoughts on the economic collapse, hyperinflation and and possible uh, civil war? And you even go so far to say at the, at the end of your book that we after if there's a civil war afterwards, we might see um, a one party totalitarian state in the U.S. Uh, with where, where they'll be putting, you know, per, making purges and putting people into uh, concentration camps. Oh, no, it's one of the possibilities. Obviously, the main issue is how probable it is. Uh, the best way will be that uh, it's, um, and I wish that, obviously, I live here. It's my country now, you know, and I have a vested interest in it to be preserved as the functional society. 
The problem, of course, that uh, if you look today at new generation, <clears throat> you know what is the industry more? I mean, you can see the uh, marijuana dispensaries popping up. You know, you go through some uh, smaller city towns in the say state of Washington. The marijuana dispensaries are the dominant feature of the main street USA today. Okay. The, the whole idea is it looks like the only thing they do is smoke and pot and they are high. Uh, in industry, it is extremely difficult to find those people who can actually operate on the manufacturing floor. And that's with it comes obviously the collapse of the competence, with it comes uh, the other, you know, um, associated and, uh, you know, uh, uh, rings on the water issues, you know, and... Uh, so the best way will be for the United States to basically uh, just uh, negotiate their modus vivendi with Russia and China and recognize that the only part the United States is allowed to uh, will be there, obviously, Western Europe, you know, Western Europe and part of the Eastern Europe, those who want to you know, get associated with the decaying West and be much multiculturally, uh, you know, enriched and things of this nature. Sure, let them, who, you know, who cares? But in terms of gigantic Eurasian economy, which is forming, uh, we have to be very clear. Uh, it doesn't matter if the US uh, dollar is the world's reserve currency. Just to give you an example, recent uh, contracts, including on the oil and gas between, let's say, Russia and India, they were conducted in the rupees and rubles. What are you going to do about it? It's like that, you know? That's what I'm saying. Okay, when Libya wanted to trade, you know, oil for gold and some, uh, we, we know what happened. Can you do the same to China and Russia or in? No. You're going to get killed trying to. So... And that's what I'm saying. People don't understand that power is not in currency as much as it's important. I'm not saying it's not important. But I mean, what's the difficulty to denominate, you know, uh, oil, gas or any other production in your, you know, currencies through some other medium? And yes, Russia and China, I mean, they trade oil in yuans and rubles. China pays yuans of, uh, to Russia for many, you know, uh, uh, military and other technological, you know, uh, products. And even gold now with the... Yeah, gold. Yeah, it's like, okay, so can we stop this charade? In fact, is even SWIFT reports that's, uh, that uh, US dollar have been declining in the, uh, you know, uh, trade balances and trade uh, and the payments. Uh, today, it's like 43%. There is euro, there is you know, uh, was uh, uh, British pound, there is Chinese yuan. It doesn't matter what the, uh, uh, what the percentage is. What matters is that the country which wants to cooperate, let's say, with Russia or China, it can say, okay, let's trade in our currencies. And guess what? You need to have somebody, your posse, to come and say, okay, you are our friends. We're not allowing you to be attacked by the United States. That's what happened with Syria. And suddenly, what are you going to do? Yeah, you can trade with whatever you want. And so let's not embellish, you know, that, of course, that what it allows, however, 
And that is why we do not have hyperinflation yet. We already have very high inflation. I know, look at the real estate prices, look at the cars, look at the rebuy stake, which is now grew almost 300% you know, in price. Look at the milk, which went from $1.49 to $2.39. You know, it's all over the place. It's horrendous inflation, but it's not hyperinflation inflation yet. Why? Because through the dollar and the mission of the dollar, United States can export its inflation outward. But the stronger the country is, like Russia, Russia can wipe off the United States, well, you know, can wipe the United States off the map, I mean, easily, 25 minutes and, you know, and you, nothing you can do. You cannot attack Russia. You cannot win it militarily. So in this case, Russia can choose whatever she wants and however she wants. You know that Russia has no treasuries left. Ah, it has like $3 billion. It's nothing, pocket change in U.S. treasuries. Why? Russia can trade in whatever it wants. If it trades with, you know, a Poland, hey, if Poland, Pol Polish guys want to play, play Zlotys, sure, let's negotiate. Let's see what you can offer. And we will buy for those Zlotys, you know. And uh, so that's what it is. That's the main danger. That's why they're so in panic. So the only way for them is to finish off Europe, whatever the Europe will give the United States, maybe 20 years, you know, before the economy of Europe is destroyed by the high energy prices and it stops being competitive. Fact is, I don't know, I, I do not want to insult people, but I, I would never buy German car, for example, okay? And I'm talking like Mercedes or BMW. I, I just not going to buy it, even if I would have money for that, which I think is still ridiculous to pay that overpriced and over-engineered junk, basically, you know? So, and that's the whole point. Now, Germany... Tomorrow, it closes another three nuclear power uh, generators. Guess what? They already are non-competitive pretty much because their products and costs may contain gigantic share of energy. In, you know, something like 80% of the cost is energy. Well, now they want to make energy even more expensive. It's like, okay, guys, you want to commit suicide? It's your business. It's, it does sound like a suicide. Speaking yeah, of the, it's uh, you. You do it. United States will not. Um, and let's let's play uh, American uh, economic nationalists here. Why should United States worry about it? Okay, we know that financial capitalism is that. We know that the whole idea is basically gone. What, what the United States can do now? United States will not be allowed into the Eurasian market because Chinese will beat United States like hands down, pants down. I mean, with the cost and even quality of the production. Well, oh yeah, whole American consumer market is provided. By China. Let's start with this. So United States is not competitive there because there's China and for example, uh, what uh, Ford was successful for 20 years in Russia, it closed down. So what's left for the United States? Well, Latin America, but also, of course, Europe. How can you uh, do it? How can you make it profitable for Europe? Okay, let's shut down or diminish uh, Russian uh, European energy connections. Let's put the Europe uh, Europe on the diet of the expensive, let's say, liquid uh, liquefied nat natural gas and other things. United States can sell it. It's gonna kill it. Obviously, and already their uh, production plants are closing all over in Europe. You know, they cannot sustain this. And after that, guess what? Suddenly, 
either United States becomes the on the receiving a uh, end of the say Germans and Dutch or even Italians moving production back to United States, thus reindustrializing the United States. So it's not such a b- bad plan. Let's put it this way. And I spoke about Europeans going to be launched. They're stupid. They don't recognize that because they're brainwashed and their elites are imbeciles, basically, you know, but that's what it is. So, and the United States will turn Europe into the basically, you know, uh, nice uh, service economy, you know, which will produce nothing and which will be buying American products or Chinese products or whatever, you know. So, if they will hold on to Airbus, maybe that's about it. But the plan itself is not necessarily unsound. Give it uh, at least this understanding, you know, if they have this plan. But that's what it is all about. And so Europeans already feeling the brunt of it. It's just the start. It's a warm up. Everybody wants to leave. And the principle of the global capitalism, you die today for me to live this day, for me to die tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's exactly what is happening. So black Europeans uh, do whatever they want. They want to kill themselves. Hey, be my guest. It's democracy, okay? And, Free and, will, mm-hmm. do whatever you want to do. And as you said, uh, obviously, my, myself as an American, uh, yourself as, I don't want uh, America to collapse. I want it to do well. Exactly. But there are just things in motion that, you know, are, are leading towards a downward spiral. And I don't want to be in the way uh, of that. Um, yeah. And so, as you said, you know, we might see this resiliency in the U.S., but have you ever thought about, I get emails um, weekly now from Canadians and Americans who are, uh, who are looking to escape uh, Canada and the United States, basically the West, you know, New Zealand, Australia, and Europe. Um, I've actually met some of them as well uh, here in Mexico, but have you considered uh, there might come a time where you'll have to go run back to Russia? I. I would lie if I say we didn't, but uh, and uh, just to give you some uh, insight, there are a number of uh, uh, not claims uh, applications for Russian citizenship from Germany is now in tens of thousands, and we are not talking about the former Russian Germans. Now German Germans, including from the Western Germany, are trying to migrate to Russia. And again, I was stunned when the, I read the statistics and Germans themselves provided it. So tens of thousands. So would we leave? We have to understand that um, if we have, um, obviously, United States is already a uniparty system. It's just single political party with different uh, neoliberal wings. It's just that the democratic part of the uh, neoliberalism is more totalitarian, and um, because there's many uh, psychopaths, well, I mean they're pretty much spread <laughs> among both parties. But um, if United States at least partially implements this plan, and uh, if there this huge geopolitical settlement is reached, that okay, you want this sphere of interest, sure. Uh, hey, it's it's understandable. Then the United States maybe have more time. It might uh, extend its life, and then who knows? Uh, then once the generation of this uh, uh, creeps, basically, you know, for be that Mitch McConnell or Nancy Pelosi, what 
Soviet Politburo has nothing on American political elites. They are all farts there. Some of them are probably like, I'm sorry to say this, but uh, U.S. president is an embarrassment, honestly. You know, it's just freaking embarrassment. Leonid Brezhnev, the man who went through war and was uh, wounded and sustained concussion, serious concussion, he in 73, before he died, despite the fact that he was, you know, speaking slowly, he still was had a bright mind, you know, to, he still, uh, when you look at Joe Biden, it's like, oh, my God. You know, it's um, it's bad. I mean, it's really bad. So uh, uh, it's obviously on the uh, in the process of the implosion because you either have the a, a sociopath like Ted Cruz, you know, who also is extremely ignorant, and you know, or you have this old farts who run the whole you know uh, inner party there, you know, and who cannot do a thing. They they only know the only competence is how to play apparatchik games within the American political discourse, how to elect, to re-elect, how to, uh, you know, take bribes or refund, you, you know, whatever they do there, you know, how to lobby and do favors. They have no competences of the state statesmen. And historically, this, nah. is, historically, this is a sign of, of collapse. When we get these kinds of people uh, at the top of power, I mean, that's a sign of, you know, some yeah. people even say, like, if, if you look at, like, if you get a little spiritual and you look, look at the Bible and God, and it's like, yeah. usually when you put, it's like a, a sign that, you know, you're, you've, you, yes, yes. The, the country has gone spiritually, morally the wrong way. And here, here you are. This is what you get. Um, I, I have one final question that uh, uh, listeners would be remiss if, if, if I didn't ask you. Uh, and you touch a little bit about it on your book. Given the times that we're living in, um, you mentioned Jeremy Rifkin uh, a few times in your books and how uh-huh. the U- U.S. has embraced techno utopia and technolo- uh-huh. technology as its god. And under the current health emergency, to me, it seems in many of my listeners that uh, a techno dystopia is being built, not just in America, but in some other countries in the world. Uh, I'm not sure if you mentioned in your book, if I read it well, that that you consider the, the we'll call it the crown virus uh, pandemic uh, as fraudulent in, in some way. And I'm really concerned about, and many of my listeners, these restrictive measures that are being imposed with these QR code, digital passports that are like going to control your life. And, you know, what's your take on on the pandemic and these a lot of these restrictive government policies that the EU and the U.S. and other countries are, are putting into play? Um, it's um, it's an old proverb. Never let the good crisis go to waste. This is exactly what it is. There is a pandemic. Let's make no, make no mistake. There is a pandemic. I mean, it's obviously grossly overstated, but there is pandemic, there is death, this new flu, and people get sick. And hey, my daughter got sick, for example, and her husband, they got sick. They got COVID-19, they had all those things, but but they're fine. So obviously, we know now that COVID-19 kills primarily old people with the pre-existing conditions. There is also no doubt about gross overstatement of the statistics because uh, you can look it up Seattle Times, for example. Oh my God, this beautiful 47-year woman just died from COVID-19, blah, blah. Uh, Yeah, she had the fourth stage uh, cancer, but yeah, it's COVID-19. Sure, you know, and uh, I have some inside information, which is so disturbing that um, literally it's, uh, yeah, people in more killed by guns Oh, COVID-19, it's 
we know that is overstated. But there is a pandemic. I have no problems with, uh, uh, what's the name of it? Um, I went out and all my family went out. We did here a Johnson & Johnson job. It's a more classic vector type, uh, you know, uh, job. Very similar in mechanism to Russian Sputnik V, you know. Yeah, couple of days off, you know, just a little bit, uh, um, uh, you know, malaise type thing. And you're fine, you know. So um, <clears throat> it's grossly overstated. And of course, it was used for the political end. What I think so, though, that eventually... This is the one of the major leverage points for the change of the old guard. Because I think, uh, let's be the, okay, listen, I, I am independent by, I obviously vote primarily, you know, for GOP because the, they are also psychopaths, but they're less insane, you know? So, because at least they, they will sell you not immediately. They will sell you in a protracted way and you will have the options, you know, while they're selling you for the profit, you know, to, but I think midterms, which are coming, will be a huge indicator because I believe that even uh, very many of what would be called the traditional uh, democratic voters, Many of them, I don't know the percentages, they've been terrified by what, by what was done. And then, of course, you cannot, well, I mean, obviously, DNC uh, will retain this, I don't know how many percent, small percentage of the uh, totally, pardon my French, batshit crazy people, you know. But the most people, even those liberals who suddenly recognize that, oh, we love the guns, you know, we want, and hey, these were not us. Well, conservative or independents who are buying guns because we already have them. You know, this was them, this liberal part, which basically crushed the market because they suddenly recognized, well, guys, you know, all those dilly dally la la land about, you know, warm and fuzzy feelings. The real world is tough. And now they have to make a an, uh, an, uh, choice. And I think so. The choice will be shown in the midterms. I honestly, and again, don't make no mistake, I'm not political observer, I'm not political commentator in terms of American political highly corrupt and, you know, process of the elections. But I think so, Democrats will learn the hard way how to sustain a catastrophic defeat, lose the Senate and, you know, House of Representatives. And after that, who knows what, you know? Yeah, uh, others, uh, other guests of mine uh, agree as well. And yeah, I, I do hope it goes that way. I, I agree with you again on, on, on many things. And as you say, the the Republicans just they're all they all are corrupt and, and bad, but they just give us they're less worse uh, in a sense. They, they, yeah, lesser of two evils, you know, yeah. in this respect, sure. Plus, you know, even this fundamental neoliberal deregulation, economic deregulation thing has its obviously social and cultural uh, aspect to it. Yeah, they also deregulate you in terms of, yeah, you do, you are kind of, you know, individual uh, free, quote unquote, man. But yeah, that's, uh, we'll see, you know, uh, who knows? All right. And you people love power. You you are my uh, last guest uh, of twenty twenty one. Do you have any final thought uh, to leave us with? My final thought will be this: Let's uh, kind of uh, lower our expectations, but let's not get too pessimistic. You know, there are still things worth living for, and we are in the end also the drivers of change. 
So whoever listens and watches us, I want to say just Happy New Year to you and wish whatever you want and let it come through. But most importantly, two things, peace and health. That's the most important. The rest of it, hey, we've seen days worse than that. So we're probably, we should be all right, I think, you know. So, and yeah, I, as being and living in America, being American citizens, I wish this country prosperity, at least not prosperity, at least some stability, cultural and economic. And, you know, after all, I just miss going to movie theaters too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Your website is smoothiex12.blogspot.com. The links will be in the description. People can find you uh, on YouTube. You're doing more uh, video analysis on, on your YouTube, which is great. Uh, they can uh, support you with your Patreon. And I highly recommend getting all three of your books at Clarity Press uh, or Amazon. Is there any other website or, or project that we should know about? Well, I'm working on the fourth book. It's not coming that soon. It's probably going to the working uh, title is ABC of Geopolitics, and I want to undertake the review of geopolitics, not from the view of geography, which is absolutely irrelevant, but from uh, from the point of view of the resources and how to defend them. So that's actually what real geopolitics is about. So, and But that's about it. I will try to continue with my videos. And yes, thank you for plugging me and support for support on Patreon. People are more than welcome to support me who can afford this. And other than that, it was very interesting talking to you. You are an excellent uh, host. All right. You're an excellent guest. And as I said, everyone, be sure to get his uh, books, follow the blog. And, you know, despite all the difficulties we, we discussed uh, that, that may come, uh, Gospodin Martianov, ja želaju vam šastljivog dovog goda i spasiba što bili na Geopolitika i Imperija. Spasiba, agromne spasiba. We still will not forget the Hrvatija, Russia, Croatia, Russia, 2-1. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, two, two, and then and penalties. That that hurt, but it was one of the best games ever. And believe me, I watched World Cups since 1978, you know, consciously. It was one of the best games ever, up there with uh, France and Germany, and West Germany in 1982, you know, so that's kind of that type of the game. I, I, I joke that Croatia, we were third in 1998. We got third yeah. place 2018. We got so uh, 20 years later, 2018, we got second place. So maybe by 2038, we'll, we'll win the final. I rooted for you guys. I rooted for you in the finals and with all my heart. Uh, first, I love Luka Modric. He's outstanding. I mean, he is. Lovren now plays, uh, plays in Zenith, you know, St. Petersburg. He's good, you know. So, but I mean, it was a heartbreak. I, uh, it could have gone the other way, actually. All right. So well, was, happy new year. And happy uh, new year. Ho hopefully we get an update from you uh, in 2022. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. 
The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.